the reading this morning will come from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. That's on page 1078 if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. We welcome you, especially if you're a guest. It's an encouragement to us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. This week, we will begin our stateside campaign. Uh, we, we look forward uh, to that opportunity, and we want to encourage you to be praying about that. We want to encourage you uh, to be involved in that every way that you can. I'm hearing that we have at least 85 of us that are going on that campaign. And so that's obviously very exciting. Uh, but also, a way that everybody can be involved this afternoon is we plan on stuffing 16,000 packets beginning at 4 o'clock here in the fellowship room. So if, if you are going on the campaign or if you're not able to go, either way, but you can be here at 4 o'clock, there is a lot of help that is needed at 4 o'clock this afternoon. So if you will, uh, please show up if you're available to do that. And uh, last year, about that same number uh, was stuffed from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock because so many of you turned out uh, to help. And so please keep that in mind. If you're available uh, this afternoon, that will be greatly, greatly appreciated. Commit your all. It's interesting to think about the challenge of commitment, but especially when it is committing your all. I love this little story about the little boy that wrote a girl that he liked in school, and he asked her in the letter, Dear Abby, or Ashley, would you uh, be my girlfriend? And then he even said, I like you a lot. And then he had yes, no, or maybe, and asked her to circle which one. And she says no as she circles it. And she begins her reply by saying, I'm sorry. I already have a boyfriend, and he, his name is Kyle. But whenever we break up, you're my first choice. <laughs> now, what, what kind of commitment does that sound like to you, especially with his closing line she writes? 
P.S. That'll probably be in a month or two. You know, commitment is never easy. And that reminds me of a book that was written a few years ago. And the title of the book was something of the effect of Stop Dating the Church. And the author of the book wrote it from the standpoint of how a lot of people like the church, they just don't love the church. A lot of people believe in God or His church, they just don't want to commit to belong to it. And so the premise of that book was, it's one thing to say, I like it, I'm drawn to it. It's another thing to say, I commit my all. You see, today it's not just simply the question of, what do you think about God? What do you believe about God? But it is more so of, have you committed your all to God? Here's a chart that... Nothing scientific, just to get us thinking this morning. Perhaps on the low level of commitment, we would use words like wish and hope, like, oh, I I wish I could be close to God. I'd like to be close to God. Or what about I try? That sounds like a little more commitment, doesn't it? I try to be what I need to be in my relationship with God. And it sounds even better to accompany that with, I want to be, I want to be. But what about to be able to say this morning, I commit my all to God. Not just I want to, and not just I try. But how many of us can say, I do it. I commit my all to God. Again, there's nothing easy about that, but there's something very rewarding and beautiful about that. When we read in 1 Peter, the fourth chapter in verse 19, notice as he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. What does that mean there when he speaks about committing your soul? Is he talking about liking the thought of that, trying that? Is he talking about wanting? Is he talking about, I wish I could do that? No. He's talking about literally, I have given up my soul to do this. You see, the way the word commit is used in its purest sense is not exactly the way we oftentimes use it in our English language. In our English language, we oftentimes use the word commit as if it's a pledge that we are considering out in the future. Like right now, you could say to me, I pledge to give $100 to this cause, but you haven't done it. But yet you're saying, I intend to do that. But it's another thing right now to bring $100 out of your pocket and say, here it is. Now you've committed it. Now you have given it up. Look the way this word is defined in Greek, and then let's notice a couple of ways that it's used just to help us expand our thinking on this. The very first part of the definition of this word in Greek is to place alongside. And then it gives a couple of examples that seem really unusual. For example, like presenting food or truth along beside. How, how does that make sense? How is that commitment that you give up food to someone? 
Well, notice how this very same word is used in Mark the sixth chapter in verse 41. On the following slide, we see in Mark the sixth chapter, just the last part of verse 41, this is where the 5,000 were hungry. Jesus has been given the little boy's lunch, a two fish and five loaves, and Jesus takes the bread and he, he breaks it, looking up into heaven. He gives God thanksgiving. That's an interesting posture of prayer, isn't it? We see many postures of prayer in the Bible. Here, the Lord looks up, thanking God for it. And then, this is the same Greek word that he commits it to his disciples, except here the word is, he gave them to his disciples to set before them. That's the word commit. And the two fishes he divided among them all. He took this bread and he didn't keep it. He set it before them. He gave it up. A little boy committed that lunch. He could have kept it for himself. He gave it up. It was given to Jesus. Jesus could have kept that lunch, but he didn't. He gave it up. He committed it. In other words, in a sense, he took the food and he laid it along beside the disciples. And then as the, the miracle was being, uh, was happening, that it was being reproduced, it was then that the apostles took and spread that among the 5,000. Let me show you one more time. This word is used several times. Here's another way that it's used and in English, it is translated commit. But I'd like for you to notice this in Luke 23 and 46. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he's about to die. And it says, when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now you notice that there he's not saying, I tell you what, I'm going to die in a little bit. I want to make a pledge to you, God. He's not making a pledge. He's saying, right now I'm physically alive. My spirit is within me, but I'm about to die. And when I do, I'm going to give up this spirit to you. I'm going to commit this to you. Commitment is what we give up. Now with that in mind, I want to ask you a real important question. What do you commit to God? What do you give up to God? I hesitate to give an illustration here because I'm afraid I'll make your thinking so narrow that you'll miss the huge point. But I'll do it anyway. Some have decided to give up Sundays occasionally. If it's convenient and it works into my schedule, I commit to worship. And what they mean by that is when it's convenient, I'm going to give up a Sunday morning and go and worship. Now, there might be others that they say, oh, now my commitment is I give up. Every time the door is open, I give up myself to go and I'm there in worship and Bible class. I'm committed to that. Someone else might say, well, now I'm committed to give. Every time I have received blessings from God, I give back. I'm committed. I give. In other words, it leaves me. I give it up. How many of us, though, can say, I give up my life. I give up my all. 
the abilities God has given me, I give them up. I lay them along beside God and His will, and I allow Him to do in my life as He wants. I give up my decisions. When I go to work tomorrow and I make decisions, I want to make sure that every decision I make would glorify God. When I go home, I want to fulfill my role in my family the way God would want. So I give up myself for God. God doesn't want to know what you're going to do in the future with what you don't have today. God wants to know what you're going to do today with who you are and what you are. Are you willing to commit? Are you willing to give up? With that in mind, I want to invite you into a study of 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, but that's not exactly fair to say that, that we're going to study all of 1 Peter and not even all of 1 Peter, the fourth chapter. But as we look at 1 Peter this morning, I, I want you to just be aware of just a few things that might help a little bit along the way. In 1 Peter, we know that it was written about perhaps 35 years after the church began. This would also have been about the same time that Paul would have been executed. So was Peter written in a response to Paul's execution? We don't know for sure. It might have been a little bit before or it might have been after. But what we do know is that it was at the time that persecution was rising and it was about to get a lot worse. And so he writes a book challenging Christians not to lose hope as the suffering grows more intense and more physical. And so with this in mind, you think, how do we do this? How do we endure when it seems like physically we're losing the battle? And so with that in mind, we will not be able to study all of 1 Peter 4, but I'd like for you just for a, a few minutes to look at the bookends that really reveals to us how we commit our all to the Lord. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Peter, the fourth chapter and verse 1. 1 Peter, the fourth chapter and verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but what? For the will of God. Notice he's talking about what we should live for. And so in verse 2 he says, you know what? We're not going to live any longer for our fleshly nature. To fulfill the lust, lust is sinful desire of the flesh. Our, our flesh is selfish. Our flesh is carnal. Our, our, our fleshly nature, if you will. We're drawn to things that would hinder us from being holy. And so he says, what we want to do is instead of living that way, we want to live to fulfill the will of God. In other words, now that becomes our purpose. What are we giving up? And think about that word commitment. Are we willing to give up our self-will to lay it along beside and take in God's will? Now, if we could fully understand that and do that, we don't need to study any more today. We've got the lesson because that's all encompassing. If every one of us could just simply say, I've got it, I know it. 
And, and in that, we would be perfect and none of us are there. And so let's study this this morning and see what is it that we could do to fulfill the will of God? Well, one of the things we need to be aware of, and, and if you turn to Galatians 5, I'm just going to read a couple of verses, Galatians 5, but hold your finger here because we're coming right back to 1 Peter 4. But in Galatians 5, to just be reminded how the flesh and the spirit are so much at opposition. See how clearly Paul says it in Galatians 5 and 16. Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. You know the word contrary means in opposition to. And so here when we think about will of self, will of God, living by the flesh, being led by the Spirit, God says, I need you to understand these are contrary. You can't bring both of these in your life. That's why in Revelation 3 it talks about the lukewarmness. What if you bring in hot and what if you bring in cold? You're not hot. You're lukewarm. He says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And so this, this contrariness is, what are you willing to give up? If we commit our all to God, we're saying, I give up my will to live your will. But we can't do both. So now let's go back and let's look at the other end of the bookend in 1 Peter, the fourth chapter. Look again at verse 19. I know we read this just a moment ago, but I want you to notice it as it relates to the bookends of living the will of God. And, and have you noticed just in a little bit we've read, these bookends are used in the context of suffering. And so he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the what? Will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And so from the first verse to the last verse of this chapter, he is addressing them because he knows that they're going to live in a culture and a society of persecution. And he, he gives them the challenge, are you going to be willing to commit what it takes to live faithful in spite of the persecution? And it ultimately comes down to this. Are you going to do the will of God? Commit to it. Give up. The only way we can commit is we have to give something up. Give up your fleshly nature, your selfish will to take in the will of God. Now, having said that, on this next slide, because I know that there's so much in this chapter that we can't cover. So anytime that I'm kind of, uh, I hate to use this expression, but I'm kind of picking at a chapter because that's very easy to take verses out of context and I don't want to do that today and I don't want you to do that. But so I want to show you a very simple outline of this chapter. We're not going to be able to study it fully, but if we were breaking this whole chapter down, we could break it down in this way. First Peter four, the first six verses would talk about us suffering social rejection. Then the next few verses, 7 through 11, which we won't have time to touch on, but they're rich and they're of the eternal importance. And it would be loving spiritual glory. In other words, God in his glory is going to send back Christ in his glory. And those that have been willing to suffer faithfully living the will of God are going to receive Christ's glory. And so that is a huge part of this chapter, but we just can't study everything in one sermon. And so now look at verse 12 through 19 on this outline. Suffering physical injury. 
So it's interesting that the first few verses that we're about to look at a little bit more here in just a moment, the first few verses he's saying, sure, I know it's difficult when people around you that you're working with, you're friends with, you may even be family with, and they start to reject you and they mock you and they speak evil of you. I know that's difficult. And that's a part of the suffering that he addresses, especially in the first six verses. Let's give a look at that. In 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, and in verse 1, we're going to read that again because this time we're going to notice as we read it how we prepare ourselves for social rejection. Look at 1 Peter 4 and 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, so he's the example, arm yourself also with what? the same mind are you willing to suffer in the flesh for the cause of the kingdom Christ was and so now we arm ourselves with that same mind now we know what it is to be armed uh, whether you're pro or against it let's not let that sidetrack us at this time right now if someone someone said I, I'm, I'm armed right now I hear that there may be someone that might hurt me and, and I'm armed right now 1 Peter 4, Paul is writing, or Peter is writing, and, and he, is, he is saying, there's an enemy out there, which by the way, what's interesting, in 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, is where he talks more about the devil being the enemy in verse 8. It's in 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, he doesn't spend much time identifying Satan. He identifies the people that are influenced by Satan that make Christian living hard. Please do not be confused with the fact that they still are not our enemy. Remember Ephesians 6 chapter, flesh and blood is not our enemy. But yet, in 1 Peter 4, he makes it very clear, talking about the heathens or the Gentiles, depending on your translation, and then he continually uses the word they over and over. In other words, think about it this simple. In 1 Peter 4, we have living for God, the talk to us, are we going to be willing to live for God? And the obstacle or the barrier is they. Sometime culture, society, people that don't live for God, they make it very hard for us to live for God. So the they here is a huge obstacle that's addressed all the way through this fourth chapter. And so notice, if we are going to be armed spiritually to stand up against the obstacle of they that really is fueled by our enemy Satan, what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to arm ourselves. And it's not some kind of physical weapon that's a secret weapon of Christians. But it is arming ourselves with a mind that says, I am willing to, now we're talking about commitment, give up comfort and safety and even my life to continue to live for the Lord. Are we willing to arm ourselves with that mind? Once we have done that, we're ready for that obstacle or that pain of suffering. Look, if you will, in 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. See, that's, that is in opposition to the will of God that is the bookends of this chapter. And, and some of your translations probably say the will of heathens. It's the idea of just living a godless life. And notice, Peter puts himself in that. And, and all of us could put ourselves in that. None of us are perfect. We've had times in our life where we say, wow, I, I have not lived the will of God. And he's, he's looking at that not to glorify and not to brag about it. In a sense, it's more of looking back with regret. He's saying, am I going to live like a heathen today? And Peter's saying, absolutely not. I've spent enough time doing that. 
I am through with that. Well, what are you going to do, Peter? He says, I already told you back in verse 2, I want to live the will of God. I'm preparing my mind to suffer no matter what I have to suffer to live the will of God. And so then he continues the rest of verse 3. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Out of all the sins he could have listed, for this particular passage, he chose to list especially sins that have to do with drunkenness and sexual immorality. That's what most of these sins they listed. Now, isn't that interesting that that was the thing that apparently was a huge problem in the first century with mankind, that when someone became a Christian and said, I don't do those things anymore. I used to live like that but I don't do it anymore. What do you think the response was in the first century? And what do you think the response is oftentimes, even today in the 21st century? Read with me in verse four. In regard to these, in other words, the sexual and, and the drunkenness, the immoral living, giving up the, the drinking parties he mentioned and the carousing around, it involved not only the drinking, but the sexual immorality. And, and so he says, I gave all of those things up. And he says, in regard to this, they, see that's the pronoun that continually is used to refer to those that's living as the heathen. They think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. If you expect the world to compliment you for your high moral living, and I don't mean high as in arrogant, look at me. I mean high because you've allowed the Lord to set your standard. You have really misunderstood life and Christianity. The world is going to look at you and instead of saying, I admire your discipline, a lot in the world is going to look at you and say, I don't understand you at all. You are weird. Why wouldn't you do what you want to do? It's your body. It's your flesh. It's even your desire. Why would you not do it? And for us that don't do it, it's because we have committed ourselves by giving up our self-will to take in God's will. And so now not only do they think it's strange, but notice that next part they're also going to speak evil of you. So really it becomes double injury. It's already tough enough when you know you're not accepted. And it's even harder when you know then there's gossip going on about you behind your back, maybe even in front of your back. Now they're speaking evil. We're living right, we're doing right, and they're speaking evil. And notice that's part of the suffering that God says. So I want to bring out, I guess, the obvious here. When that hurts desperately, just know that God knew it was going to hurt. And God puts that in the category of suffering. But he doesn't put it under the excuse or the reason to give in. Now, could I also note this for you? That's what we expect the world to do. But isn't it a shame when it's a brother or sister in Christ that's going and speaking evil of you? It just gives you an insight to how that brother or sister in Christ is really getting on the wrong path. 
We expect the world to attack Christianity. We expect the world to be cruel with their gossiping. But you just don't expect the Lord's church to practice cannibalism. Sure, there's not anybody here perfect. All you got to do is get to know us and you can find something to gossip about. But that's the beauty when we truly understand the Lord's church. We give up that fleshly nature to take on the will of God. Look with me, if you will, just a little further. And I know I say this to you sometimes. I wish so much we had 30 more minutes, and I know we don't. Breathe easy. Look at, skip down, if you will, to verse 12. And we're starting a new paragraph, if your Bible's laid out in paragraphs. And the reason is now the emphasis is not just on like a social type of rejection. Now the emphasis is up probably what a lot of scholars believe is that he's pointing to the literal harsh physical persecution that's coming in their life. And he calls it a fiery trial. And one of the things that Nero was known for was he loved to persecute Christians with fire. It said that in, the, in his garden that he would literally top Christians and, and that was his evening torches in his garden. And in and, and whatever other ways, it was horrendous ways in which he would persecute Christians. And so the idea of fiery trial, we know what it is to go through a trial in life. And he takes, and Peter says, but there is a fiery, in other words, there's, there, it burns, it hurts terribly, physically. It goes down to our quick. It literally can extinguish our life. And so he writes, and notice what he says in verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. What word is in there twice? It's in there twice for an emphasis sake. Surely it is. And he says, don't think it's strange. Why should it not be strange? Because back in verse 1, what did you do? You armed your mind with the willingness to suffer. I give up. I'm committed. I give up self-comfort. I'll give up my life to take on a willingness to stand with God no matter what the cost. Do you realize that there are billions of people on this earth that you've never met, but you don't walk around saying there are billions of strangers in this world. Now, you take any one of those billion and you put them in your car on Sunday morning and you walk out of here after church and you get in your car and you look over and you know what you're going to say? There's a stranger in my car. Why all of a sudden did they now become a stranger? The word strange in its root literally means to host. But you know who you're hosting? You're hosting someone you don't know. If they live on the other side of the world and you've never met them and you don't have a relationship with them, they're not a stranger. They're just somebody who lives on the other side of the world. But now if they're in your face, if they're in your life and you don't know them, there's a stranger in our house. Do you know who that is? There's a stranger in my office. Do you know? Anytime we use the word stranger, we're saying, I don't know them. Do you see what he's saying right here in verse 12? This is huge. Notice what he's saying here. Do not think it strange. 
fiery trials are going to come upon us as a Christian. And, and I'm just speaking from knowing the scriptures when I say this. I don't mean to be disrespectful to any of us. I'm talking to myself. But we are foolishly ignorant of God's will. I'm talking about we ought to know the scriptures whenever something happens to us where we are mistreated and our response is, I can't believe that. I wasn't expecting that. And God is saying, don't let persecution be a stranger. The first time it happens to you, you ought to be able to say, I armed myself for this. God told me it was coming. And it doesn't knock us off of our spiritual foundation. It doesn't buckle our knees of faith. Instead, we say, you're not a stranger. You're exactly what God warned me was going to happen. If you truly live the Christian life, well, you have social rejection. There's no doubt about it. Will you and I live in a time where there's a lot of even physical or financial persecution? Probably a pretty good chance. But don't let any of us say, I didn't expect that. I can't believe God would let that happen to his people. But instead to be able to say, that's not a stranger. That's what God said. So now let's skip down and let's just read the last verse again and we'll summarize. 1 Peter 4, 19, therefore, remember, therefore is tying everything that's been said and he's going to bring it back to a summary of the will of God. And he says in 1 Peter 4, 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God Commit their souls. You heard someone say, wow, they sold their soul to fill in the blank. It, that, the idea of your soul is your life. It's your being. It's kind of in this sense the way it's used. It's talking about all of yourself. Are you willing to take your soul and commit all of yourself to God? And if so, we're willing for the will of God to give up, because that's what commit means, give up everything including we will take in suffering to give up everything to do the will of God. And you can trust him. He's a faithful creator. So what do we do? We must offer our mind to God. An armory is where the equipment to go into battle is stored and maintained. We arm our life, our soul, when stored in our mind is the willingness to suffer with Christ. So what do we do? Number one, we arm our mind. What do we do? Number two, when you introduce yourself to suffering and persecution through a study of scripture and the arming of the mind, so it will not be a stranger when it visits your life, introduce yourself to suffering before the suffering actually comes. Number three, what do we do? Will you commit your mind? Will you commit your identity, your body, your soul to Christ? In other words, will you hand these over to God and trust him. He's trustworthy. That last statement, we didn't have time to spend much time on it, but when he says, as to a faithful creator, you can trust him. We don't want to give up things when we don't know whom we're giving it up, if they're just going to waste it, if, if, they're, if they're, they're going to mistreat it, if they're going to misuse it. I don't want to give my life up to someone who's going to waste my life. I don't want to give my soul up to somebody that's going to lose my soul. 
Isn't this interesting? I keep my soul and I lose it. I give my soul up to Satan and I lose it. I give my soul up to you and I lose it. But what if I give my soul up to God? Only then is it saved. What do you give to God? What do you commit to God? What are you willing to give up? Today, we'll end where we started. I'm not saying it's easy. But that's the journey we're on, to grow to the point that we can say, I give my all to God. And if we can help you on that journey, we're all seeking to do that. We're, we're wanting to commit to that. And if we can encourage you, if you're ready to be immersed into Christ, which is a very important part to begin that journey, if, if you've begun that journey along the way, that's not where you are today is on that journey. And you want to come back to him and commit your all again. Isn't it wonderful that he's a God of a second